Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. You're listening to Family Feud, part of the Paris Style Podcast family. They might not be brother and sister, but they sure do fight like they are. Here's your hosts, Keely Yor and Shotgun Spratling. Welcome to another episode of the Family Feud Podcast. I'm your host, Keely Yor, joined by Shotgun Spratling. We haven't had one of these in a while, Shotgun. We're back. I think it was pre-Iowa. Well, who really wanted to talk about the Iowa game afterwards? <laughs> yeah, we took a little bit of a hiatus. We've been on Tunnel Vision, so you've kind of gotten our opinions on things. Uh, but as a token of our apology, we have a special guest for this episode. Chris Trevino has joined us. Da-da-da-do. Yeah, we're suffering through this so, <laughs> because as a, as a form of apology. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you guys never told me when I could come back on. You never gave me a strict date, so I've been waiting in the parking lot every day since. And today was my lucky day. The dedication is admirable. Yeah, I will the, say that. The uh, security out front has been wondering. We got a lot of a lot of calls and texts about you know a lurker. But this is kind of uh, the end of the cycle. We had you preseason. We had you at the bye week, and now we're having you at the end of the season. It's the official end of the podcast, right? It's over after. That's this, what it means. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Your life cycle is <laughs> over. Face right now. Okay. <laughs> but the gusto pills. Last time you took them, you had a rousing performance. People liked it. Have you taken the gusto pills? Well, we have some gusto. I've actually changed doctors, and oh. it's not pills anymore. It's a straight syringe shot <laughs> into <Wow>. my buttocks. <laughs> and that's what you're doing in the It's a little bit more right? controlled. It'll be more level gusto. Okay. So maybe about 20 minutes, it'll start to kick in. So Okay. Just be, just so be, it's not time-released anymore? No, it's more like a, you know... Hope like a little, like yeah, we'll peek it, we'll peek it, we'll we'll track it. So just if you notice something's fishy going on, just it's kicking in. Anyway, yeah, I'm not touching that. <laughs> As a reminder, you guys can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Megaphone. You can also email us questions or submissions to our podcast at familyfeudpod at gmail.com. Thanks to everyone who was faithfully still sending us emails while we were on hiatus. We appreciate you. We'll get to those in a bit. Uh, but first off, it's a different format for this episode of the pod. We're just going to go over the January news and notes. First up, of course, USC made uh, their hiring of Todd Orlando official last Friday. Shaka, you and I have talked about this on Tunnel Vision and whatnot, so we don't have as many thoughts to share. But Chris Trevino... You haven't really put your thoughts, opinions into the ether. What were your initial reactions to this hire? I mean, all things considered, considering it took nearly a month to get someone on board as the DC, I think this is a good hire for the Trojans. Just like a a guy with college experience who's spent most of his time in college, a guy who's going to bring intensity, who's hopefully going to change a little bit of the culture on defense, who'll up the department of the recruiting with the D- the DC position and just I think it's going to be a, a good hire overall. I like the hire. What do you make of kind of the the disparity in numbers slash stats from his 2017 year at Texas to 18 and 19? I mean, just some of the reading that people were kind of are the writings about that those those comparisons in those defense where he didn't have some of the personnel that he needed, especially at the linebacker was a little bit didn't fit what he was trying to do. And I mean, I don't really know. 
why the decision to cut him off was so quick. I mean, Herman was under a lot of pressure to make some changes, and I think he just it was a business decision and just had to cut him off. I don't think it would have been as bad the next year. I think they would have changed some stuff if they had kept him around, but I think he was just under the gun to make a change now, uh, considering the high-pressure situation at Texas. Yeah, you kind of wonder uh, if uh, at Texas, because there's so much pressure on head coach to win and win now, you know, there's so much win now mentality that maybe he's a guy that, hey, there was someone on the roster when he first got there that Charlie Strong had, you know, recruited, fit really well, but they lost a bunch of defensive players, you know, after that first year and some more after the second year. Uh, so you, you wonder if they had gotten their guys in to really fill in for some of those spots, and maybe that was part of the issue there. Obviously, they had a bunch of injuries this past season, which is, you know, you saw at the end of the year, they kind of upticked when they got some defensive backs back. Now, some of that, you know, is kind of questioning you know, your defense and how you're kind of lining guys up, and was that because of some deficiencies in some other areas? When he takes over this USC roster, it's it's going to be similar to that first year at Texas where there are playmakers at all three levels. Now, are you going to be able to recruit and fill in those spots in the next couple of years if he's on board for multiple years? You know, it might be a similar type of situation that you brought that up, Chris, whereas if they don't get some impact players in this next recruiting class, they're going to be in trouble in two years. You know, there's already some, you know, some question marks about the offensive line because of some yeah. some uh, some areas where they didn't recruit very well the last few years. They're trying to fill that in with, you know, five, six guys this recruiting class. But are those impact guys? And, you know, last year's recruiting class was the worst in the modern recruiting era. It's going to be the worst ever this season. You know, even if they surprise some people and get a couple names here at the very end um, for signing day, it's still going to be the worst one ever. So, you know, are you going to have those impact players? The fact that Orlando is out there talking to the local 2021 kids is huge right now because he's been going, he's been making the stops. You know, Ryan talked about this on, on your guys' podcast earlier in the week. I, I, I actually listened to your guys for once. I'm so shocked right yeah. now. I don't usually listen to the podcast, uh, but, you know, I decided to listen and on, on a drive, and he, he brought this up that usually Clancy Pendergast was involved in the recruiting process at the end. You know, he was going in for the in-home visits. He was trying to close, but not the beginning. You know, he wasn't the guy. You know, maybe he was watching tape and stuff and assessing guys. He was assessing guys at camps, definitely, and those type things, but not the guy going out and doing as much as we've seen from Todd Orlando in his first you know, his first week on on, uh, on staff, he's been out to a number of high schools already, and that's probably partly because he needs to build those relationships. He's yeah. brand new to this area. Clancy had been around previously. He's back. You know, he came back. This was the second tour, third tour at USC, actually, for him. So he had some of those connections probably already. Todd Orlando's got to build some of those. You know, all his connections are probably in Texas, much more so than, you know, at USC or in Southern California, even, you know, the spots he had been out previously, you know, before Houston being in uh, Connecticut and, you know, the, Wisconsin as a player. You know, those aren't, those don't link up with, with Southern California as much. So he's got to get on the ground and get running and give him credit for doing that so far. It's going to be a change for us, you know, when we would talk to kids in the past cycles and, None of them would ever really mention Clancy during in-season. And if they had mentioned I've been talking to the defensive coordinator, I'd have to check and be like, do you mean Clancy? (laughs) (laughs) We're still talking about the same defensive coordinator because he just didn't do stuff in-season, like you said. It wasn't until later 
in the when the closing periods came in where you see him in home and them talking those are kind of the first time they're really interacting with him so to see Orlando already out you know I did a story this week about you know a top 21 21 prospect Oregon commit who got a phone call like two days into Orlando's tenure at USC and he was telling him you know I want to get you down here I want to talk about the defense I want to want to get you here which is interesting because when I was trying to get the scoop on Orlando from the Texas people one of the knocks they had on him was that he wasn't the greatest recruiter now maybe when you're comparing it to Clancy Pendergast it's a step up but they were saying that he didn't wow people in in in-home visits and whatnot so this seems like a good step forward so far yeah I mean the the fact that he's putting the work in so far that's the first step now You know, USC has some really dynamic recruiters. They still got Gavin Morris. You know, in those personal situations, maybe this is an opportunity for him to learn from someone like Gavin Morris. Clay Helton has always been really, really good in personal situations. Yeah. So maybe this is a spot where Orlando can learn from someone else. It's hard to have just personality. You know, that's a, a difficult thing to you know to learn from. But it's something that you can you know fake it till you make it type of thing to to a little bit of an uh, an extent there. You know, but his impact is going to be on the practice field. I think is going to be a much bigger impact. The fact that he's still putting in that work on the on in the recruiting trail that's big though. You know, you got to start with something, and USC didn't have that previously. So I think just adding on, you know, there, you've seen that there's several job. Um, listings that have been put out by USC they're trying to put more emphasis on the recruiting side give USC give the program a little bit more resources to help out with these things so I think all those things are positive notes nothing is you know a, you know a grand slam right now but some positive notes moving forward I think it starts with that you know can they turn around the tide in recruiting it, it's it's going to be make or break for this program going forward, whether it's Clay Helton at the helm or anyone else. If you don't shore up your recruiting efforts and losing all the talent that they are from Southern California, you're going to become you know, the Washington State of the South. Yeah. Now, I didn't preview this when we first entered the pod, but we're going to be talking about Todd Orlando uh, personnel moves, coaching, and players and whatnot, and then get into recruiting. Because believe it or not, of recording this, we're one week away from signing day, which the fact that it's kind of so anticlimactic kind of tells you where USC is right now and also kind of what's happened with the early signing period. But So we'll get into that in a bit. But I just want to jump back to Todd Orlando. One of the things that kind of piqued people's interest about uh, Orlando was his comments on practicing. If you practice off, you play soft. USC came out with this whole like media rollout on the Friday when they announced it and they had a video interview with him and he said as much there too, which is interesting that USC is kind of giving a nod to that. Um, But do you think that's something that Clay Helton will step back and let Orlando do kind of modify what they do at practice? Yeah. What you had just said, I found it interesting that the social media accounts highlighted that specific you practice soft or you don't, you can't play hard if you don't practice soft. Something like that was like, was that like a little, subtweet or something and i thought it was a really smart move for him to just put it out there i was talking to a usc parent over the weekend about this like yeah i mean if you put it out there and say this is what you want to do and then it doesn't happen it's not it's kind of saying it's not on me i told you what i wanted to do i put it out there what my plans were for my defense for my part of this program and if you know that's something you could fall back on because what we're talking about is if it's helton's going to allow this moving forward into spring, is he going to loosen the reins a little bit and let them actually, you know, go out there and hit and hit and hit, which they've been, you know, cautious, we know, for the last four or five years or whatever. But I don't know. I just thought it was a smart move and an interesting move by him to just putting it out there like, hey, I told you what I wanted to do. Let me do it. 
And this has been a consistent message from Tarlando at any stop he's been at. It's been pretty much the same exact phrase, you know, that he's, he's used at Houston, he's used at Texas. Anywhere along the way, he says the same thing. Uh, now, if it's implemented, that's the big question. And I'm going to go with, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. And it's not so much hitting. I, I think people get trapped in this thought where you got to be going full speed. There just needs to be these giant collisions all the time. It's tackling drills and stuff. You see the giant circle that some teams will roll, and you know you're working on your angles. There's a moving target to go. You know the motorized bags that you tackle. You know that the Stanford has. You know just different things like that that USC just doesn't consistently do. And then when they do do tackling drills, you know when there's two players going at each other, it's sixty percent, seventy percent, which is not learning. It's, it's, you know, being in a math class and like, okay, we're going to do addition to practice our multiplication tables. That, that doesn't make any sense. Like you have to be going full speed to be able to practice it. Or then you get into the game and you're not able to comprehend the, you know, the multiplication table that's coming at you, you know, <laughs> just to bring it back to elementary school math. But it's, it's something that they have to do more consistently. You know, if you're going to do a tackling drill, there's two players. It doesn't have to be to the ground. It doesn't have to be a giant collision. But you need to go. You need to wrap up, and then let them go. But you need to be running at full speed so that you can practice that. You get your head in the right place. You get your angles right so you don't have the shoulder injuries that USC had. You know, Dan Weber has talked about several times about seeing Iowa and seeing them practice, and you know, a little bit before the bowl game, and in 15 minutes saw them tackle to the ground more than you would ever see USC. It doesn't necessarily have to be that, but you can incorporate those things. And then when you go into your run periods, that's when it becomes so much more effective because you get in those run periods, and now the offensive line and the defensive line are going full speed, blocking full speed, and you know the nine on seven, someone's coming up and trying to make a tackle at a full speed instead of you know slowing down once you get through the line of scrimmage. Then that's how you learn how to tackle. That's how those guys come learn to fill the gaps and fill correctly. And you know you're not a step late. All those type of things all starts with being more full speed. Not necessarily the giant collisions. Not necessarily tackling. You know you know going eleven on eleven all the time. But just being more full speed in the tackling drills and doing those drills repetitively and, and you know mixing it up though repeated repeated. Tackling drills, but in different varieties, you know, to keep things fresh for the kids too. Yeah, I think to your point, just mimicking game-like situations so that when yeah. you get to Saturday, it doesn't look like it's completely new to them or that they're not handling it well because that's kind of that's what we saw. And so, if you compared what they were doing on Saturday to what they did in practice, it was just not compatible. It, it just didn't work out, and you could see that just in how poor their technique was and the fundamentals. And so, you know. You got to give credit to Clay Hilton. He's let Graham Harrell do what he's wanted. It seems like he's kind of stepped back, especially in an area where he always says he's a quarterback's coach, so he wants to meddle. So he's been able to do that to a certain extent. Will he let Orlando do that? I like you. I'm going to be still cautiously waiting to see. Something that could help push this is the fact they're playing Alabama first game. True. Because Clancy Pendergast, the first you know the first game the last two years they played you know a lesser opponent and. You know, they had a bunch of missed tackles, and it was kind of, well, this is our first game. Those are going to happen. And there are always, the in, across the entirety of college football, there are more missed tackles the first two games of the season than there are the rest of the season because there's just not as much full contact as there, there once was in college football. So you're not fully ready, you know, fully ready for that contact. So sometimes guys slip off. 
but USC just it was just seemed like it was built in like okay whatever it's the first game that's going to happen and there were a ton of missed tackles you know Jorge Reina running all over the place what did Jorge Reina do the rest of the season Whereas now you're facing Alabama, I think Todd Orlando is going to have that in their mind the entire time. It's still a we'll see. I'll see it when I believe it. Yeah. I mean, I'll believe it when I see it. But I think that that adds the extra emphasis that, hey, unless you guys want to get blown out like you did. And if I'm Todd Orlando, I bring up that, you know, the previous game against Alabama over and over and over. I'm like, look what you guys did. Look what you guys did. And I would put it on players over and over and separate myself from it. I'm like, do you want to do that again? Is that what you want in your life? You want 52 to 6 once again? You know, I think that, you know, I would use that as motivation as much as possible, but it doesn't really matter if you don't. Your motivation can only get you so far. You actually have to put the, put the work in and put the work in on the practice field as well. Yeah, just what, just jumping off what you said about the players and kind of showing that to motivate them. I think the players are craving this just as much as they were craving, you know, a new change with the lifting program last season. Um, obviously, no one wants to get beat like they did. No one wants to miss those missed tackles. They were tired of drubbed. They <laughs> drubbed. Yes, I think they were tired of, you know, ask, asking those questions about, well, why was the tackling so poor? Why why couldn't you contain on the edge? Why why were we getting out physical uh, by another an offense? I mean, the players. I mean, I saw some of them tweeting, like Chris Steele tweeted, you know, culture is changing. You know, he was kind of hyping people up on, on Twitter. So I think, you know, these are kids. They want a fiery leader. They want someone to light a, a fire under their ass. I think Orlando's the guy that can do this. I mean, not that – I don't know about – you know, you hear Clancy yell on the practice field, but it wasn't like <laughs> – you know, it wasn't like, you know, the rah-rah kind of like you would expect from a D.C. And, you know, the things you've heard about Orlando's, he can be intense. He can – He's very detail oriented. I think the yeah. kids are gonna, you know, they crave this. They want the structure. They want someone who can lead them to a hard hitting, fearsome defense. And and again, there's NFL professional mentalities that work better. There's college mentalities that work better. When you have kids that are still growing and learning, you know, I, I it they don't crave that. They don't crave. They don't want to be yelled at. But it's what they need, and they realize it eventually. And they get used to it, and you know it, they build from it. Whereas in the NFL, you're like, dude, what are you doing? That that's that's not. This is a professional. We know how to handle ourselves, type thing. Uh, you know, there's there's just a difference in personalities that work better at different levels. And I think Clancy's mentality works better at the NFL level. And that's you know he had success there. He went to a Super Bowl. I think that he brought the same professional mentality to USC, and when he had the players and guys that he could teach his defense to, like he did with that, you know, the the team with that Orgeron, you have Leonard Williams up front, and you have some, you know, kind of guys that kind of took things professionally, veteran guys, then I think it works. And I think it worked really well that season. They had a really good defensive defensive year uh, at, at times, didn't in that ASU game. Uh, but I think that when you have a bunch of young players, which is what USC's really had the last couple of years, you know, they had, what, nine seniors last year, 10 seniors on scholarship, uh, that it's much more difficult for that to work. You know, you, you listen to kids talk all the time, and, you know, whether it's the the Michael Hutchings or the Oluwala Batikus or, you know, whoever talking about film, and usually it takes a year or two before they realize just how important actually watching film is on your own because the coaches only have so many hours during the week. So 
you know, it takes those more, it's a more professional atmosphere of how you go about, you know, preparing yourself for games. And I think it takes some kids a couple years to do that. You know, the ones that pick it up and, and start taking over, that's the ones you see a lot of times take a big jump, you know, is when they realize those things. And I think Clancy worked a lot better with guys that were putting in that extra work on their own versus guys that need to be taught that. And so to be taught those type things, that's when it takes a fiery guy. That's when it takes, you know, the the story Dan Weber said about Tarlando standing up in the meeting and saying, you know, that's not happening here anymore. You know, where some of the top defenders were some of the guys that were, you know, being chastised by Aaron Osmus, you know, for for not doing some of the stuff around, you know, their schoolwork or attending classes or whatever it may be. Um, so I think that it takes a fiery guy with younger guys much more so than the professionals. And I think to your point, that's why we heard of kind of quote unquote Clancy's circle where there would be guys that were trusted by him and kind of in his grasp or something like in his favor. And then there's guys who felt like they were out of it. And I think that how they approached it and if they approached it like a professional, then you got the favor of Clancy versus if you didn't, you were kind of on the outs, if you will, quote unquote. I think that's a hard leap for some guys just coming out of high school to then make that approach as a professional would. Especially really, really talented guys Mm -hmm. that are used to just being able to fly around all over the place and just destroy people. And I'm just so much more of an athlete than all these kids I played in high school that I've never had to put the same amount of work in that maybe some other kids do. And I think that you realize that when you get to college and you play in some games, you play against some really good teams and you go, oh. These guys are just as athletic as I am. Now I've got to actually do the study part of it too. And so that's why I think it's kind of a learning process in college a lot of times. Now the big question that people have when it comes to Orlando is how much does his scheme differ from Clancy Pendergast? What are the differences, do you think, uh, in what we're going to see next season? I mean, it's probably the fact that the base or that that tight front is like three down linemen as opposed to what you know Clancy was running last year with, with like a five was it like a four-two-five? Whatever the numbers change all the time, but <laughs> Clancy's base defense, what he called his base defense, is something they didn't even use this past season. But was three true inside down linemen with two outside guys, which was which you know which was Port Augustine and Uchina Nwosu previously. But then you know they would take out a defensive lineman, so they get the nickel back on there. So it was basically a four-two-five is what he was running prior to this past season. This past season, it became more of just you know the, the four-two-five with actual down linemen instead of stand-up linebackers. So you know you could look at his previous defenses and say, oh, that's a two-four-five because you have two guys with their hands down, two guys standing up most of the time. And then, you know, your two middle linebackers, five defensive backs. Whereas it, it sounds like Todd Orlando is more three true down linemen, three linebackers. Now, where the third line, you're going to have two middle linebackers and the third guy, you know, is he on the line? Is he coming off the edge? Is he backed up? You know, I think they can do some different things. That's one of the defenses he's used. I, I just feel like he's a multiple guy, so it, it's kind of hard to say exactly what he will do because I think he's kind of morphed. He morphed while he was at Texas, just based on you know the guys they had. They ran a lot of three two six this past season. You know, from some of the, the stuff that I've read and, and clips I've seen, where you know they wanted to get an extra DB out there, and you know they kind of funneled things outside. You know, the you know the the big question marks are. What do they do with the linebackers? You know, how many did they put out there? 
USC changed their look last year with Clancy Pendergast going from, you know, to true four down linemen much more often to try to stop the run better. And they did that in the, in those you know situations. But overall, it just wasn't, it didn't work out successfully for them. Will this scheme be more aggressive? When you use three down linemen and you put three linebackers on the field, you're usually going to bring a fourth guy on every play. So where does that fourth guy come from? Is it the same guy all the time? You know, in Clancy's quote unquote two four five defense, where you had the two stand up outside linebackers with uh, Uchenna and, and Port Augustine, those guys were pass rushing almost every single play. So you knew those were the four guys that were coming. What uh, what a three three five defense does, or you know, what some of the other defenses that have that have been out there for years, but that start with three down linemen, you know, a, tr- a true three four defense like the Steelers ran for forever is the question mark is where's the fourth guy coming from? And you put that pressure on the offensive line to identify who's going to be the pass rusher this play. Who's going to be the guy coming up or who's going to be, you know, who stays back and who do we have to reach to get to the second level on run blocks? You know, those are the type of things that the the defense causes can cause confusion with an offense, uh, but it, it all starts with kind of figuring out what your linebackers do well. And can your guys up front, can the three guys in the front of that, can they you know, make traction on their own, or are they just placeholders? And by that I mean, are they just guys that are taking up a blocker so that your your linebacker can run free, or you know, are they making plays on their own? Are they defeating double teams when those happen? You know, the, it starts. It's much more centralized on the linebackers. It seems like to me, you know, where they're the you know the coveted position. That's where you got to get your big time recruits because you're going to ask them to do a lot of different things. You know, rather than just they're going to be pass rushers a lot of times, but they're also going to drop a lot too. So I think that those are some of the things that are kind of different in that where you're putting a little bit more pressure on the linebackers to do a little bit more. I think another definition for what he was doing at Texas and it's referred to kind of like a positionless defense or position or a defense that kind of relies on, you know, hybrid players, guys who are kind of like tweeners, whether it's like the linebacker offense or uh, linebacker defensive end kind of spot or like a linebacker safety spot, which we will probably talk about that star position. Um, but yeah, it just allows him and these hybrid players to give different looks to an offense with the same players and kind of move them around and kind of like a little chess match um, and kind of move or move you over here. And I guess we'll see a lot of that just with the exoticness of the blitzes he creates and and stuff like that. Yeah, and obviously the quote the talk of positionless defense was really brought up when Texas was able to beat Georgia in a bowl game because uh, they really confused Georgia's offensive linemen in their when they were trying to run block you know because they wanted to run block like 912 percent of the time because that's all they did which is why I'm still not sold on Jake Fromm as a quarterback <laughs> at the next level we'll see um, to diverge a little bit but yeah that was that was something that was really big you know and talked about a lot then is because they moved guys in different direction and Georgia's offensive line never knew exactly who was coming. And that's what, what what's going to be a key of this defense, regardless of, of exactly how they line up. One of the things is to create confusion. What I'm curious about is that you rely on your linebackers to make that your mic or your Mac or whatever they call it, uh, to make those calls. Would a pallet EA, has he matured enough to be that leader in the middle like that? I think it's hard to say without being in the meetings and seeing him, you know, diagnose. 
you know, he struggled with diagnosing, you know, play action versus runs and some of the inside versus outside runs, especially early in the season this past year, playing that will spot. You know, if you give him more responsibility before the snap, sometimes that helps players. You know, sometimes they're just that much more, you know, keyed in on certain things and that makes them better. You know, so I, I think where he ends up and what they try to do with him will say a lot about this defense and, and what you're trying to get out of this defense. He's a playmaker. That's the thing. He he blows up plays. He can take on blocks. He can get around guys if he's you know if he's rushing the passer. He has he has he has speed at his size. You know, I wouldn't say he has speed necessarily. But he's a very physical player, and he got beat up a lot last year. He took a lot of nicks and bumps, and that's why he was kind of shut down later in the season. But if you get him, there's a reason why he was a five-star guy. He was a top five in the country guy. You know, a lot of people said he was the best linebacker they had seen. You know, uh, for you know half a decade, if not a decade, and we just haven't seen it at USC. So maybe a change in philosophy here helps him out a lot where you know they're not expecting him. When he lines up on the edge, you knew that Pallier was coming on a blitz. When he lined up in the middle, he didn't blitz as much from the middle. It, it didn't happen as much. I don't know if that was just a, a scheme thing with Clancy, uh, but he rarely would go up to the line in the middle of the line of scrimmage and then back up and drop into coverage. He just It, it wasn't much disguised to what he was doing pre-snap. So if they can disguise some things, get him some matchups where he's one on one, and you know it's a guard having to whip his head around to try to pick him up, I think that you know makes things a lot easier on EA, and I think his confidence will build if they can get him some success early this season too. And it's huge for EA because Orlando is a linebackers coach. Yeah. he yeah. played linebacker yeah. at Wisconsin. That's been his position, you know, going up through the ranks when he's moving to DC. So he's going to get a lot of time with. EA and another thing that players rave about that he's so good at diluting something that's complex and making it simple for these kids to understand. So, you know, he might have, as we you mentioned, that EA might have had trouble diagnosing what was coming from the offense, getting him in a room with Orlando so they can break down this stuff. I think it's going to do huge for his, the, the game, his, his football IQ, and just kind of we'll see that hopefully flourish this season. And that's what I was going to ask is who's going to benefit the most from this scheme change. You kind of already answered Pallier. Potentially. I mean, he's got to put in the work. He's got to, you know, he has the opportunity. And I think just a change was good for him after not having the success. And also he's been, you know, he's been banged up both both seasons, um, you know, not living up to the the five-star hype initially coming out, of, out and people thinking that, hey, he's the next 55 at USC, you know. I think just a change can be good for him, but he's got to live up to it. He's got to put the work in. He's got to do all those things. I, I said it on Tunnel Vision, Solomon Tulealapupu, if you can get him healthy, I think he can be a guy in the middle of the defense that it, you know can can uh, potentially jump into playing time. Again, he's got to be healthy. Um, I think that the, the big linebackers, those two, and the fact that they both can run, I think that, that helps them a lot in, in this scheme where you don't necessarily have – you know, four guys in front of you to to take up all the blockers. Where you're gonna have to take on some blocks, I think. Uh, so we'll see. It's it's tough to say until those two guys get on the field together or get on the field and Solomon practices for a week straight. You know, I'm still I'm still not gonna hype him up to be a starter until he practices for a week straight. It hasn't happened yet at USC. Hopefully he does. You know, it's been two years where he's just been not been able to do anything. So it's been kind of 
disappointing and hurtful to watch a kid who's trying to go through the situation where he wants to be on the field and he just can't happen. So I think both of those guys in the middle of defense could be, you know, could be guys that could see some success in this defense. I would say like a deeper pick guy would be a guy like Raymond Scott. I mean, we're talking positionless defense. I mean, hybrid players like <laughs> coach, this is me. He's always this is what I've been like. Yeah. yeah. He's like, you know, that hybrid safety kind of a guy or a linebacker that were trying to turn into a safety that, you know, didn't really work at that nickel spot. But I mean, we watched him in high school and he's just all over the field. Great instincts can diagnose stuff, play coverage. I mean, he's probably the best. If they move him back to linebacker, he's probably the best like linebacker in coverage that they have. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, Orlando gets a look at this guy and is like, hey, I think I can do some stuff with this guy. Another guy I'm going to throw out there, maybe a little bit deeper, is a guy like Brandon Peely. You know, Orlando had a big boy in Puna Ford up in Texas his first year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ford, you know, was coming in at six foot, 305 pounds, using him as that nose tackle. And then, you know, Brandon Peely is a, lo- a lot bigger at six foot four, 325 pounds. So, I think Orlando's going to be looking at him as like, I got to get this guy on the field and some, we might see him in some different packages. Because are you seeing, sorry, Tufele, Peely, and Marlon all on the, on the field at the same time in this defense? I mean, potentially. And it again, that goes back to what exactly are they going to run? Is it going to be yeah. a 3-2-6? Is it going to be a 3-3-5? Is it going to be, you know, a 3-4? You know, I think that Todd Orlando has done different things at different stops. And so I think that that gives them some options. Look, Drake Jackson's going to be on the field somewhere. Where does he fit? That's the big question. Exactly. So, you know, if you have a 3-4, he can be an outside guy. He is athletic enough to drop. We saw him in the spring game with the ridiculous (laughs) interception that he took to the house on on a screen pass, I think it was. So, you know, he is, is capable of doing that. And that goes into the positionless defense. Can your defensive ends or outside guys, can they drop into coverage? You know, a guy like Kanai Malga was great going forward but struggled in coverage. You know, it, it's finding what works well for your players and putting them in the best positions. You know, so I, I think it kind of it depends on what he sees he has, but I think Brandon Peely is a, a really good uh, uh, pick there. Marlon Tuipelotu struggled down the stretch. You know, he wore down. It was just pretty pretty evident that he wore down. Brandon Peely really took off towards the end of the year. Um, and that, he got more opportunities partially because of Marlon wearing down. And he was really good. He was pro- I think he was, if I remember correctly, he was USC's – when he was on the field, USC's defense was at its best. If you read the War Room, I had a whole at its best uh, – series that will conclude this week with who was at, at at its best when was USC's defense at its best in coverage you know with every DB's breakdown of you know when the ball was thrown their way so check that in the war room this week but you know Brandon Peely the defense now he's in for a lot of short yardage situations and stuff so that helps his numbers a little bit but it was significant that he was the best defender pretty much you know, the best, most common used defender, at least. So Significant in a statistics type of definition of significant? Or is this your opinion of significant? Both, I think. Okay. Um, I think that it shows that he's a guy that made a transformation from the previous year. You know, he, he had a sophomore slump yeah, that was- and struggled, and his numbers were nowhere close to that, and his numbers were much better this season in a lot of different ways. Um, so I, I think he could be primed for a really big senior year. And again, you know, there, there's always a little pressure on that senior year. You know, it's my last chance. I got to show out. I got to show what I can do for scouts, you know, those type things. He's got an NFL frame. He's got to put in some more work and, and continue to, to imp- improve. But I think he could be a guy that definitely could. Jay Tefele is going to be on the field. 
Drake Jackson's going to be on the field. You got to figure out what's the best way to use those two guys in the front. And then at the next level, what's the best way to use Pali and Naitiote? And then what's the best way to use Talano Hufunga? Those are your four guys that are elite playmakers. Find a way to use them best. You know, and that that's the four in the middle of the field. They're going to make a ton of plays. You, you got to figure out how to use them, you know, and, and be able to maximize the skill sets of all four of them. Something you alluded to was the injuries that Texas had at defensive back. And part of that, just because Orlando's defense likes to attack the interior, push everything outside. So then you have your defensive backs and whatnot making those tackles. Is that a concern? Let's say that was his defense last year. Sure, sure. So they went, like like I said, from the stuff I've read, I only watched a, a couple of Texas games. I wasn't really focused on necessarily the, the schematics when I was watching, but they ran a lot of 3-2-6, which is they use the linebackers inside, and like you said, the, the defensive ends were not lined up as wide so that they were trying to force things outside, and then the, the, their speedy DBs would come up and try to make tackles. Spill and kill. Yeah, spill and kill is a great, great way to put it. You want your fast guys to come up and make tackles on the outside. You want to force offenses to go uh, laterally rather than going vertical. And that's a great plan until you realize that if you don't have the right guys for it. Now, the positionless defense, those nickelbacks need to be more like safeties. You know, you need guys that have the Greg Johnson frame or a Chase Williams frame more than a Jene Harris because – now you're asking those guys to make the majority of your tackles when in a you know traditional defense, a 4-3 defense, or even a 3-4, your middle linebacker is the guy that leads the team in tackles every year because everything is kind of pushed towards the middle of the field. Teams, when they run the ball in between the tackles, you, you, you take up a blocker, get that guy free so that he can go make the tackle. Now if you spill and kill and you're pushing things to the outside, now those guys have to make the tackle. Now you're putting, you know, instead of, your nickelback making 50 tackles in a season or making 80. You know, 30 more hits on a guy like a Jenny Harris is going to have much more of an impact than on a guy who has a bigger frame like a Pali and Atiote. So that's something that is a concern if that's the defense he chooses to go with. And he had a bunch of, you know, uh, a bunch of defensive backs get injured when they came back and were healthy at the end of the season. That's when the defense really played better. So USC has the depth at DB that you could do that. But again, they've also had the same injury concerns, a lot of shoulder injuries and stuff like that. That's why it comes back to tackling and practice mm-hmm. and making sure you have the correct form to take guys out, you know, right above the knee, use your full body instead of just one body part. You know, you're not reaching out with your arm and having your arm pulled back and, you know, having, you know, rotator cuff injuries and, you know, having shoulders pop out, those type of things. You got to be able to use the full force of the body as an entity rather than individual parts. Just to throw things out for the sake of throwing things out, if he had not underwent knee surgery, do you think Isaac Taylor Stewart would have been an interesting nickel? Oh, definitely. I, I think that if you run that type of defense where you're trying to push things uh, to the interior, and I think that if if you put a guy like that in there with that physicality, you know he can. You know, it, it makes me think back to Taylor May since he's been on our shows and stuff. You know, he played safety at USC when he got to the NFL. They bumped him down, you know, as a linebacker a lot of times because he had that the the the, the body type, the the physicality to play in in the box. Whereas I think Isaiah Taylor Stewart has that. He has all the other intangibles, all the other tools as well, all the other measurables. Um, so I think that 
you need those bigger bodies, and I think Greg Johnson, I think Chase Williams as well is another guy there. Uh, and then we'll see how some of those young guys, you know, how they develop this year as far as their body wise. You know, Doran Hewitt, where is he going to fit best? You know, where's, uh, you know, a couple guys like that? You know, Kalana Makala. You know, are they able to bulk up? And they could be guys, and you can run, you know, a dime defense if you really wanted to, and try to do the same type of philosophy. But if you don't feel like those guys are the ones that can make the tackles, then you change things up. You start, you know, you put the defensive ends out wider. You force things back inside with the run, and you just try to funnel everything into the middle. It's just kind of a philosophy and basing it on of where are we going to find our best playmakers? Where where can we put them in the best situations? And I think USC is really good up the middle. Like I said, they have four guys in the middle of the field. I think are really good. So you might see a change there to kind of utilize those four guys uh, to their best ability. Spill and kill meant something very different for last year's defense. The offense would spill outside and USC would get killed up the edge. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, they were just slipping and falling on the sidelines or something. Uh, uh, Drake Jackson uh, tweaking his ankle. That's the spill and kill. Uh, that's Coliseum turf. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of January news, you kind of brushed over it, but the ITS news that he was getting a knee surgery or he got knee surgery, the prognosis for him, is he going to be out all of fall? I mean, we haven't still locked down exactly what the knee surgery entailed was it we've been trying though was it acl mcl all of it just a meniscus i mean your best case is the meniscus i mean you could come back from that for this year but if it's an acl or any of the other cls i mean it's tough to see him back this year just knowing that's like a full year and then some you know maybe at the end of the year but i wouldn't even like push it at that point yeah. but it's not it doesn't look good if it was an acl you won't see him at all this season you know similar to ethan ray last year you know his was at the end of the high school season you did not see him at all you know maybe you see him start practicing towards you know december but you won't see him on the field i don't think now it's apples and oranges because it's offense and defense but when graham harrell came to usc a lot of the questions he got were did you watch any of USC's past film to see what you have as far as talent goes? And he was very confident in his scheme and he just wanted to kind of move on from the present. If you're a defensive coordinator though, and we talk about knowing the talent you have and the, and where to plug and play certain guys, if you're Orlando, are you watching past film right now before spring camp gets going? So you can kind of see who you want to test where? I think so. I think you got to see how they, what they were asked to do previously and what they did well versus didn't do well. Um, so I, I think you would start with that and then move on to seeing because it's so different in a game. I think you can simulate an offensive attack much easier in practice than you can a defensive attack because the defense is reacting to what the offense does. Uh, so I, I think that you need to see how they prepare. I mean, how they performed in a game, what they did well, what they didn't do well, and then you can take it to the practice field and say, okay, this is where. I think you fit best. We'll try this out. And then you go from there. But I think you, you need a baseline as a defensive coach more than you do an offensive coach. Yeah, I'd agree. You had to go a little bit Ryan on you. I mean, he's just looking in the fridge, baby. He's looking what ingredients he's got to make up <laughs> to whip up this uh, the food analogy. Well this done. This tight front defense. Just got to you got to know what you got. You got to know what's ripe. You got to know what's <laughs> what looks good. What what's uh, moldy. You got to get rid of. I don't know what that. <laughs> Who's moldy on this I don't, team, I don't know. Chris? I don't know. Give us some shade. <laughs> Check it out in the shade room. I'll let you know what the moldiness is. a moldy tomato. I don't know. Anyway, to wrap up this defensive coordinator section, the big question is, 
can a defensive coordinator change the culture on the team? I know we've already said it's TBD, but what's your thoughts? Do you think this is something that can help Clay Helton in the long run? Or is it just still the seat is hot, he's a dead man walking? I mean, yes and no. I still don't think it will be a full change culture unless it's from the top down. You know, I don't think you can have someone off to the side doing this thing. But if it's not coming from the top, it's just not going to seep into the entire whatever I'm trying to say. The whole... He's doing a lot of hand motions right now. <laughs> I, I just want you guys to know what I'm trying to say. It won't go to He's the entire... He's demonstrating the seeping down right. of the culture. Spirit fingers down. <laughs> trickle cascading down. Cascading down. It's a trickle down. It won't trickle down to everyone. Got it. <laughs> good, good motions over here, Chris. Um, I, I think that... Outside of the head coach, the two spots that can make the most impact are the strength and conditioning coach and the defense coordinator. Um, more so than the offense coordinator, I think the defense coordinator because defense is about intensity and violence. To you know, to not have a better word, um, it's attacking. You know, and, and it's hitting people. So I think you can change the culture, at least USC's culture issues. You know, in relation to that, the fact that USC is not known as a physical team right now. You know, other teams are saying that they're soft on the sidelines and stuff like that. So I think that can start with a defense coordinator and get them headed in the right direction. I agree with Owen Chris when he says yes and no, but I agree for a little bit different reason. Wait, you agree with me? Yeah, it's crazy. Mark that but I, but for a different reason. Because I agree that the defense coordinator can change the culture. Are you going to allow him to change the culture? Now, like you said earlier, and like I said on Tunnel Vision, Clay Helton did take on that CEO role in the offense. He backed away from calling plays. He let Graham Harrell run things during practice. Are you going to do the same thing with Todd Orlando and let him do what he wants? If he wants to, you know, if he wants to do more tackling drills versus 45 minutes of special teams, then sure, let him do that. And that's going to be another question is how their practice is different without John Baxter and the way they did special teams, are they are they preparing to spend as much time as they did on it? Or, you know, if it's gonna be a lost cause, you know, even if it was just you get the same exact growth results from special teams, if you take less time and put it into defense and offense and the offense and defense get better, is that not a better result? I mean, your your special teams is already terrible. So why not spend some of that time that you're wasting on special teams because it's not performing yeah. and use it for offense and defense. You know, that's a, that's one of those things as Keely and I have said for, I don't know, five years now, it, you know, if things aren't going right or not going the way you think they should be going, sometimes you got to change things. Yeah. We've said change. it ad nauseum, which is a perfect segue into our next section of personnel moves. Thoughts on the special teams coordinator. How do you think this is going to go down? Do you just shift over a Johnny Nansen type to fill in that role? What do you think is going to happen there? I mean, I feel like I'm sitting next to USC's next special teams coordinator at USC <laughs> right now. No man on the West Coast has watched more special teams than this man right he here. He has just seeped himself in the misery that is USC special teams. I've watched the plays and I mean, I could coach up special teams. I would just give it to someone already on staff so you can have a bring on a new position because you still have that one position to fill i would bring on someone else i would just figure and, out and what can... position are you filling are you filling are you an outside up? linebacker that's no i'm going after chris claiborne but that's the thing is like you have a johnny nansen you have todd orlando 
That just seems like an excessive amount of linebackers coaches. If you're going to do that, then you would probably switch Giant Anson back over to special teams. He's coached it before. Um, and you know, to keep him on the staff, but to have him in a different role. Let him run recruiting. Yeah, you could do. You could potentially do that. These are all options that are out there. I don't think there's a great option uh, on staff to do. I mean, basically, when John Nansen was the special teams coordinator at USC previously, they were doing a lot of the same things that John Baxter had been doing um, in his first tenure at USC. So, if you're, that's perfectly fine, and that's when you would take away practice time. You know, that's you, you focus and just let the players go make plays instead of trying to out. Uh, you know, out scheme everyone on special teams. You think you just you know go play, don't make any big gaffes, and we'll be good type yeah. of thing. Uh, that's easier said than done, of course. That's an option. You know, you've you've filled a new position with an inside receivers slash tight ends coach, which is also on the rundown. Were you guys surprised about John David Baker stepping up into that role? No, I, I was surprised that you didn't have an inside receivers coach previously. You know, I thought that's something when you bring in this air raid offense, that's a position that almost every air raid scheme, you know, coaching staff has. So it was kind of surprising that that wasn't done previously. You know, they didn't have an inside receivers coach. And the fact that they didn't have a tight ends coach, you know, when you move Kerry Colbert out to receivers coach, you had a tight ends coach opening. And you just decided to put John Baxter back there. It didn't really make sense to me. I would have gone out and gotten a new inside receivers coach instead of an outside linebackers coach. Because I've said this before, but you ended up having three to four players for a coach. That was for a, one coach on a good day. There were times at practice where it was like two people, maybe yeah. one. Joe DeForest was working with Abdul Malik McLean and Hunter Eccles, or. You know, Elijah Winston moved back to inside, so you lost a guy there. You had Juliana Falanico, and that was pretty much it. And so you know, it's like classroom size. You know, sometimes it's too small. You know, you need at least 10 to 12 uh, students when you're teaching. So you can kind of hide and not have to answer every question. <laughs> or got real there. So that you <laughs> can, personally attacked. I do. So that you can actively teach more people mm, instead of. No, that's what you were going for. Instead of just wasting a teacher and not getting more people involved, um, you know, I'm sure Joe DeForest was helping out with some other things too, but we never saw much. You know, it's just the individual work. You have other positions. You have the offensive line coach working with 16 people versus three. Yeah. No, I know. It could just should have just, it's a resource that could have been allocated better. I think inside receivers, because you have, you know, you want to have, with tight ends at that spot, you want to have six, seven, eight guys there that are inside guys and eight outside guys. What you want, that's much better allocation than three. Three. Yes. Yes. I think you've made your point very clear there, Shotgun. So I would have already had this position, to get back to my original thought. Um, I would have already done this previously, so I wasn't surprised that they made the move. Now the question is, Do you are you going to hire another linebacker's person or – you know, how are you going to kind of invest that extra position that you still have open? I mean, briefly, I mean, I like, you know, bringing on John David Baker, which is a great bachelor name, by the way, <laughs> onto uh, this position. I mean, he's Harold's like right hand man. He's with yeah. him all the time. Mm -hmm. We know Harold's a good coach, so I trust his evaluation of him, who's been with him for like the last five years. 
Yeah, Graham Harrell only you know didn't really get to bring many people, didn't get to hire many people. You know, Mike Jinks was already here from Cliff Kingsbury. John David Baker is kind of the guy he brought with him. Seth Doge a little bit, I, I think. They they have a history, but they, they he wasn't from North Texas in the move. Okay, so John David Baker had been at North Texas for a couple years with Graham Harrell, so he you know he's the one guy that he brought with him. He's confidant. Yeah, so I think it's it helps with you keeping Graham Harrell around. Uh, you know, a little bit there because he's getting all these job offers and people are coming after him. So I think it helps having John David Baker there. But also I think that he really trusts him and they can, you know, funnel those ideas back and forth and, and you know, be able to talk about stuff. And I think that he knows the position, having been in this offense for multiple years, to be able to teach it, even though he was a quarterback in college himself. Yeah, I think the continuity is big there because you don't waste time trying to not only get what it's like to be at USC and the players and the personnel and whatnot – but he's, like you said, Ben Graham Harrell's guy. And so there's no – it's kind of a brain trust there between the two. And also the inside receivers, it's not like you go, okay, who's the best inside receivers coach in the country? You know, whereas it's like defense coordinator, that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Inside receivers, like who can teach this well because it's a more of a specialized position for this type of offense? Also, I just figured out what they're going to do with the special teams. What? They're just gonna, Helton's just going to promote Joe Bolton. The special teams quality control assistant. I mean, it could happen. No, that's going to happen. <laughs> Chris Trevino said it. Are you saying Mark sources it. are telling you this? No, I'm just guessing. I've just okay. figured it out. I just oh, galaxy okay. brained it. What's going to happen? Anyway, uh, more personnel moves. Austin Jackson uh, foregoes his senior season, is going to elect to enter the NFL draft. I believe Daniel Jeremiah has him as a top 25 pick, I believe. 26, oh. I think. Yeah, he has him rated in the top 30. He's 33 on his top 50, 26 to the Dolphins. I'm tired of doing mock drafts. (laughs) (laughs) I'm tired of it. But then uh, Tyler Bonds, JT Fele, and Elijah Vera Tucker have elected to stay. Uh, We mentioned this before, but I think it was big that AVT stayed because you're not replacing both. both. Your left side. Yeah, you're not replacing a Jackson, AVT, and Drew Richmond all at once. And speaking of which, Chris Davino, you had a... Offensive line projection piece on uscfold.com. Yeah, I just kind of run, run. Obviously, there's two open spots right now, both tackle positions. I kind of just ran down, you know, the who's who of who could take over those spots at right and at left. And I threw out a bunch of names. And then at the end, I kind of went through some hypothetical lineups if you guys want to hear. You named them, which I think I thought right. was interesting. I'm going to start with my the first one. It's the, the shotgun initiative. Like the Avengers nice. initiative. I, just oh, a little, I, I like a little, it. I got a little, little He's Marvel. wearing Marvel today. <laughs> Um, the shotgun initiative is basically shotgun and my secondary belief. Also, he's talking me into it. Uh, Liam Jimmons being the left tackle of the future. So move Jimmins to left tackle. Keep Vera Tucker at left guard. Nealon Voorhees returns to the right guard spot that he manned for two years before the surgery. And then you kick McKenzie out to right. Anyone want to comment? I mean, I think it's a, a very... Uh, a very plausible lineup. It's like, called not, the that's not good. it's called the shotgun initiative. So yeah. of course you would think that. But the most lukewarm response to it. It's plausible. It's plausible. I, I never want to hear it's plausible to any of my ideas. <laughs> I love it. Is that better? That's a little bit better. Yeah, cut that out. <laughs> yeah, cut the plausible, put that back in, we'll pick it up. All okay. Right. No, I, I think that Jimmins has the has the feet to to be able to play tackle. I think he moves well enough laterally and he has length as well. So I think he's a tackle prospect. I, I said before the season that I 
the way he had progressed from the beginning of spring to end of spring and from getting a fall to end of fall, that I thought he was an NFL guy. Um, and Jim Drevno later in the season kind of said the same thing to me. You know, I was talking to him about it, and he's like, yeah, I think he'll play on Sundays. Is he going to be as a tackle? You know, I thought he looked pretty good as a guard uh, going, you know, in the Iowa game when he had to step in and McKenzie was bumped out. I don't know that you want Liam Jimmins and Jalen McKenzie as your two tackles, though. I just I don't think you feel comfortable with that as a converted defensive tackle and a blue-shirted lineman that they brought in late. Um, I think that there's talent in both of those guys, but there's also inconsistency. And Jimmins, I think, has made really big strides, but still, he's a guy that has played one year of offensive line now. So you know, putting him at left tackle is asking him to do a lot. I think that it's a plausible lineup and one that I think might be their best lineup. I don't know if they'll do it, though. I think you have to go into the portal and have Liam just maybe be a rotation guy. But I don't, I don't see how you can't go into the portal for a second year in a row. There's not enough experience where you'd feel comfortable with the shotgun initiative. The, the thing is, though. I know. You, you go in the portal. How well are they recruiting right now? But I mean, you could say the same thing after a five and seven season. Getting a guy like Drew Richmond wasn't plausible. But it's probably easier to recruit uh, like a grad transfer, yeah. like with that USC Masters know. baby. Like, just uh, I don't. If you tell him, "Hey, you're coming in and you're going to play, and then you'll go and get your degree," and yeah, a lot of schools are going to be able to tell sure. you know, the best players that. I don't know if there's anyone out there who's going to be like, "Yeah, I'm sold that USC is the place to be." I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. You always talk about the allure. For guys who are competitors. Alert. True, but I, I just, I don't know. I don't know that anyone's going to you know buy what USC's selling right now until there's a little bit more optimism around the program. Even last year, there was some optimism there, uh, I thought. After no? the five and seven season? When you get a new offense coordinator, you have Cliff Kingsbury, now we got Graham Harrell, like these great things. It was rough. It was rough, though. <laughs> you can't, you can't like, deny that. We're remembering this period very differently. Yes. I think that there was some optimism there. I don't think it's I think a it blip. USC bounces back. I no, think there's now more it's... optimism going into this oh. season. With are you serious? Uh-oh. A blip versus a trend. Keenan, Keenan is listed as a Heisman candidate. There is more optimism. Uh, we'll see. We'll see if they get that somebody. That face means I'm right. You know I'm right. <laughs> I do not think you're Uh-oh. right ever. Um, no, I think it's a it's a. Going back, I think it's a plausible lineup. I think it's their best one right now. Um, th- there's some question marks there, though, and there's some different things that they can do. And it kind of is where do they start people at this spring? You know, Jalen McKenzie could be flipped over to left tackle. Uh, you could bump out Elijah Vera Tucker to left tackle. I think it starts with the left tackle position. You got to figure out that one first. You got to protect the blind side of Keaton Slovis. There are other lineups. I know, but I'm, I'm just saying no. you got to figure out left tackle first. And fine, go with your line. <laughs> just go, just go. The shift. We move Vera Tucker. We personally do. Yeah, we pick him up and we okay. put him got on it. the edge. I don't think we can pick up Elijah Vera. Tucker. <laughs> yeah, no. Left tackle Vera Tucker. Jimmins at left guard. Neilan Voorhees. McKenzie. Yeah, it's a possibility. <laughs> What's your other lineup? Let's go. The new guys. No, this is not happening. I read this is not happening. Cortland Ford, Vera Tucker, Nealon, Monheim, McKenzie. So this is the one thing that I don't think you accounted for on your lineups. Is that Nealon and Dedich could be in the lineup together too. Sure. And so 
that's what I was, uh, was starting to say is that it starts with a left tackle, and once you figure that out, then I think you figure out the rest of the lineup. So once you figure out, is Jalen McKenzie flipping over? Do you bump out, you know, do you do the shift and you bump out Elijah Vera Tucker? Is Liam Jimmins athletic enough and, you know, can he progress enough to take over the left tackle position? Is Andrew Voorhees. Andrew Voorhees is a guy who's played tackle as well. Is he a guy you look at at left tackle? So I think it starts there and then you work your way. You know, I think you flip, you go from left tackle to right tackle and then you work your way inside. You know, I think you're confident in your centers. Brett and Elon, I think Brett and Elon is going to be the center, even though I think if you wanted Dietrich and Elon in the lineup together, they really like the way Nilon has made the calls and stuff. Uh, so that Dietrich has practiced at guard, even though body wise, I think you would want to flip that, but you can't always get what you want, type of thing. So, does, is Dietrich surpass, you know, Jimmins or Verita? I mean, not Verita, uh, McKenzie or Voorhees at a guard spot? That's a possibility too. And then you know, you talked about the new guys coming in. We're just completely glancing over but frank martin was the left tackle you know last year there was the backup left tackle behind austin jackson you never needed him thankfully you know austin jackson didn't get injured but he was the guy who was backing him up you know is is he or is liam douglas or either one of those guys ready to step forward you know those are those are questions is jason rodriguez ready to step forward you know those are all the ones how much can those guys progress in a second year in the offense you know, the, the offensive line is being asked to do different things in an air raid offense, so maybe maybe they're more suited for that. I don't know. You know, do they get the give those guys chances? Does Jason Rodriguez get a shot at left tackle? You know, those are all possibilities, but I think it starts with left tackle, then you go to the other tackle spot and you'll work your way in. You know, I think you you have complete faith in Vera Tucker at left at left guard and Nilon at center. Now, do you want to keep those guys there? That's still a question mark, too. You know, I think there's a lot of possibilities with the offensive line. And there's, you know, on the offensive side, I think it's the biggest question mark and the biggest thing of interest for the spring, you know, is to see just what exactly they try to do there if we're allowed to watch practice. On the defensive side, obviously, you want to see what Orlando does, where he puts people. There's a lot of question marks and a lot of things that are interesting there. On the offense, it's, you know, pretty set. But what are you going to do with the offensive line? Where are you going to move guys around? Your scheme wise, you're going to be doing the same things. You know, besides that, is there really any other questions on the offensive side you guys have? Where Drake London lines up, maybe? Yeah. With just some of the recent. Yeah, uh, I mean, I touched on that in my wide receiver breakdown. Yeah. Kind of, we saw him play pretty much all the time and inside, but now there's a spot open with Pittman gone for a bigger receiver. Can we see him? You know, move outside, open that inside up. Who knows? But I feel like that's like the only question outside of the offensive line. Health of the running backs? It's an answer, easy answer question, but I'm just curious. Will Drake London even play in this one? Eventually. Oh, that's a good point. Oh, wait. He, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to think of the schedule as far as basketball and football. I think he would be back in time yeah, for the end, potentially. Sure. But. That seems like some valuable time missed. That's the, the... I know. I mean, you let the young guys go out and eat, The tractor baby. of... Of uh, being a dual sport athlete. True. Alrighty, moving on to part three of the pod very quickly, which is interesting given that it's next week. Uh, recruiting. Shotgun, you infamously called this 2020 class dead <laughs> on Tunnel Vision <laughs> on Sunday. Uh, what are your thoughts leading into this second signing period? I mean, USC still has some options. They're, they're probably signing maybe one or two, three more players, but 
this recruiting class is going to be the worst that they have potentially ever, definitely in the modern recruiting era that we have rankings for. Um, it, it's, I think this weekend actually is much more important looking forward to 2021. They're going to have some juniors on campus for a little junior day. I think it's much more important to jumpstart that class and get going because you're already seeing a lot of the 2021 class in Southern California is committing. You know, now USC has a five-star commitment from Jake Garcia. They have four-star guys and, and Jake Toya and uh, Ma, Ma Natiote. And Valtre Jefferson. Uh, as well, but not, not in Southern California. But whereas, uh, you know, you look at the top ten in California, and I think eight of the top ten are already committed, including the number one player in the country, Corey Foreman, who many expected, hey, that's a USC guy. No, he's going – he's committed to Clemson, as is Bo Collins, you know, the receiver. You know, another – Five-star guy that's local, Rayshon Davis, already committed to LSU. So you need to get this recruiting turned around immediately because the longer you let those guys, if you want to try to flip any of those guys, as well as the rest of the you know rest of the local kids that are highly rated, it needs to start as soon as possible. You need to start working on them, start you know trying to chip away at that commitment as much as you can. So, you know, USC just needs – they need they're, – they're off to a good start as far as what they have committed, but they need to continue to build on it because all of that was much earlier. You know, Ma, I think, committed like – I think we Forever com- ago? I think he committed like when he was four years old. I, I don't – you know, I think that it seems like it was that far back. I vaguely yeah. remember Keeley asking, do we have to write a story on this? Because it was so far – it was like – 2020. What? It was like four years before he even. I don't remember that. I vaguely remember. I feel it. like he committed as while he was still technically in eighth grade. Something like that. Uh, I think he was. I think it was the spring, and he was still in eighth grade, maybe. Yeah, you know, but it was it was really early. So like that's a long time ago. You're not getting any optimism from that. And as I've made it my mantra now that recruiting is all about having some optimism around the program. And so you know, Jake Garcia is going to do as much as he can to recruit some other kids. But he needs uh, you need some help out there. But when have we heard that about a five star quarterback being the recruiter of the class and then things changing? Are you referencing the number one overall player in the twenty twenty class, Bryce Young? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, don't talk to him or his kids ever again. <laughs> Put some respect on his name. <laughs> that was the point to elude, Chris. Allure. What did I say it wrong? No, I was just Oh, thanks. Which is interesting how you said it. Anyway, <laughs> yes, as Keely pointed out, the parallels sort of between this class is in you have this top QB to build around and then only to see it, you know, in 2020 fall apart. But obviously this one has a much better start in the sense that it's already number 10 in the nation with those uh, four they have committed right now. So you have a building block at least to sell to kids. Uh, and we know Jake is very re- hitting the recruiting trail really hard right now. And, you know, he'll be up there this weekend with a bunch of uh, other big names to build on your analogy, I think winning has to be the cement for the building blocks to keep everything together. I mean, as Gerard always says, if they win, they'll be fine. You know, they'll win 10 games, go to the Pac-12 championship, win the Pac-12 championship, they'll be fine. They'll have a top 10 whatever class. Don't forget, though, that, uh, you know, last year they had, you know, a, a decent start or to the class as well for the 2020 class. Remember Chris Hudson was committed to USC, four-star wide receiver, uh, he committed, decommitted during a sophomore year. He decommitted pretty early. But they also had Coy Moore, who's a four-star receiver from Louisiana. 
So you had Bryce Young, you had a four-star receiver with him, so it was a decent start, and just there was no momentum to build off of it, uh, even though I think there was more optimism last year. You're wrong. <laughs> You're so wrong. <laughs> anyway, Chris, you always come with a creative wrinkle to the pod. Uh, please explain your creative wrinkle this time. Oh, I, I mean, it's obviously so late in January. Obviously, this is a month where you make your New Year's resolutions. Yes. So I thought it'd be fun to throw out New Year's resolutions for the team or next season. This one is actually for the community that listens to this podcast. I want to take the turnover traveler meme to the next level. <laughs> okay, first of all, we never addressed this. You never got your due credit when the traveler you started. I don't. That. I don't want the credit. I just want the mini horse. The mini horse. I want to see it. I want to be on my deathbed watching a game and just see for the 2020, 2020, 60, whatever Trojans. Uh, 2020, 60. <laughs> yeah. How long are you living? He got to 2020 and he was like, wait, I don't want to die in the next 10 years. <laughs> I want to see that that tear after a USC pick six and that little dumb horse galloping. But I wanted, I know there's some people who, you know, tweet you guys after a turnover. You know, that guy, I don't know, is, is that the same guy, I think. Mm-hmm. Keep that up. People. I, I want to see, see signs at games. I want to get some merch going. <laughs> I want to I get this thing rolling. I want this thing, take it to the next level. Wow. I want this to be a, such a big thing that someone asks Carol Fulton in a press conference about this. <laughs> you have the power I want the to student newspaper, the Daily Children, do a story on this. I want them to talk to the people who take care of Traveler, Big Traveler, that's what I'm calling them, and I want them to see what's the viability of this. I think some people from the Traveler crew listen to us, so you can... I want, re- I want, a, I want a sports science breakdown of putting a 325-pound man on the back of a mini horse. I want these things, and I think we can do it. That's it. I'm out. I wonder if there's going to be, like, if this were to happen, if there would be, like, a weight limit. Like, okay, it's it's it's... Available for everyone up to two hundred. No, we just get pounds. a thicker horse. <laughs> we get a we get a, a DB horse. You get a thick daddy. You get a thick boy. You get a big chunk like <laughs> like he's like he's three bills thick, three C's, and that's for the D line. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You guys think I'm crazy? <laughs> I'm enjoying it though. Yeah, you think I'm crazy? That's what they said. You'll see. <laughs> Hey. You'll see. I'm all for it, though. I mean, we we looked for you know uh, a traveler mini pony on our trip to Northern California when we were driving. So we even looked up at merch stuff. Yeah, might so. have that happen. Wow. Just keep keep it noted. Would you wear a turnover traveler hat if it looked good enough? <laughs> all depends on how. <laughs> if it was crispy, yeah. Okay. There's an easy USC New Year's resolution: better tackling. Yes. More physicality. Agreed. Those are, those are the easy ones. I would also like to see at least like five tight end touchdowns. <laughs> At least, I mean, just seeing Daniel Moore Bebe out there will be will be a nice, fun addition. You know, just knowing what he's gone through, trying to get back, so that'd be fun. I, I, even though I broke that story, I'm still very cautious about all of that. You know, It'll it's be been so it long, and there's been so much that I still am holding out. But yeah, thanks for that creative wrinkle, Mr. Trevino. That's what I'm here for. 
We're going to finish up the pod with two questions. We have more, but we'll, we're already running long. Uh, first off, it's from our buddy Maybet. She says, hello, Keelan Shotgun. This is Maybet from Ontario. My question is regarding rating the players. What's the process? Who decides how many stars to give? And on what basis? What are their credentials? Thanks in advance for your Football 101 mini lecture. As always, keep feuding and fight on. Chris, you got to ask this on uh, on Saturday or Sunday, right? The event. Every at? time I go like a recruiting event, and even like a sliver of my two four seven apparel shows, after I will get swarmed like a bunch of zombies, and kids want to know how do you get them stars, man? <laughs> hey, man, you dishing out stars? How do I get on that star train? You my star man? Are you Mario? You got on the stars, baby. <laughs> Listen, I've definitely been around Gerard, and he's like, "Oh no, this parent's gonna ask me about stars," and he like goes and like goes somewhere else. Like it's a thing. Yeah, everyone needs a star, for the record star dealer. We don't do stars. Shotgun don't do stars. Gerard don't do stars. I don't do stars. Keely definitely don't do stars. <laughs> she is a star. She don't do stars. Oh, whoa! So She'll nice. give out stars. Thank you. Don't believe that to be true. <laughs> stars are handled by the lead analysts or scouts within a region. So it's like baseball. You have scouts in different regions. There's like Brandon Huffman, Greg Biggins, Blair Angulo. Those guys handle the West Coast, and they do stars based on in-person evaluations, camp stuff, and most importantly, huddle film. You take all those three things, you get yourself a star. Yeah, so stars. it comes down to the analysts, uh, you know, the national analysts, because it's it's those three guys in the West Coast, and they do all the primary rankings with those things. But then when there's rankings and stuff, there's discussions, there's big conference calls with all the national analysts around the country, you know, discussing what they've seen. And that's why events like the opening, you know, it's not padded except for the linemen, but those things are big for, you know, for the rankings, for the stars, but also the All-American games. That's why the final rankings don't come out. They, they come out not after the high school season ends, but after the All-Star games because it's an extra opportunity for those kids to show Hey, I'm that much better than the kid, you know, next to me. Best of the best. Thing. Yeah, so it's a, you know, it's a great opportunity for us to see the kids going up against each other, which is why everyone always wants to say like 707 doesn't matter. Well, if we're evaluating receivers and DBs, yes, it does matter. If I'm looking at a quarterback and, you know, he I he looks down the safety every time, yes, it matters. Now, does it matter as much as what they do on Fridays? It depends on the competition. You know, if Modern Day is playing a national schedule and St. John Bosco is, yes, we're going to be able to evaluate on those games much more than, you know, when, when Saugus is playing in Moorpark or something, you know, where there's not necessarily another Division One level player opposite of them. When there is, those are the matchups we really pay attention to. You know, you're, we're looking at the competition at the same time. We don't actually do the stars. That's always up to the analyst. So it's always fun at these events when Gerard gets scared and he's like, oh, no, someone's going to ask about stars. He usually goes, that's Greg Biggins right over there. You should go talk to Greg Biggins. See that man with a line formed <laughs> around the block? That's And to. it is interesting that there are sometimes, you know, people will swarm to discuss these type things. So I, I looked over and Chris got swarmed and also Greg Biggins because I think they both were wearing their 24-7 apparel. Rookie mistake. Hmm. Yeah, so any advice I would say is keep your huddle film updated. Yep. You never know who's watching that stuff. Get a link on your Twitter. Keep that updated. I can't tell you how many times I've asked a kid for their huddle and then I go to find it and it's like two years old. Yep. It's like your resume. 
Yeah, especially like if you're a guy who's put on 20 pounds or 40 pounds or your body is changing, you change positions, you know, those type. Well, I don't. If you were an offensive tackle last year, now you're playing tight end or the other way around. I don't. I, it's great that your tight end film's on there, but I need to see, you know, the position you're at now. I need to see how your body's moving now to, to be able to assess. And it's the same thing. This, more importantly than us, the college coaches are looking at those same type things. So. Uh, they want to see the huddled film. They want to see that. They, you know, I, I know Graham Harrell. I've talked with people in the office that Graham Harrell is, you know, the offensive staff watches a ton of huddle type film and stuff. You know, they look through and they're looking for, you know, and evaluating based off those those film as well. So it, it comes down to to keeping your things updated, and it helps when you're in your social media accounts when your name is actually in there. True. Not a DB killer. 97. As long as, as long as your real name's below it in the description. But sometimes it's not. It's, yeah. You look down, it's like the real DB killer. Okay, no, I know your name's DB killer. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> to finish off, the, the credentials of those guys, Greg Biggins has been doing this for 25 years. Brandon Huffman's been doing it for, I think, 20 years. They're legit. Yeah. You know, Gerard, like a, you know, Gerard's been doing it for a really long time too. And he does the same thing where he, you know, if it's not a USC guy, he'll text those guys and say, hey, have you seen this guy? He's doing really well. You guys should check him out or whatever. You know, we kind of help out with the assessment as much as we can, and those guys may go watch the huddle tape or something like that. But the credentials are are definitely there for the twenty four seven sports staff, which is why some other sites that don't come to the West Coast, you know, that's why we we believe that the twenty four seven sports you know rankings are the best, particularly on the West Coast. Ooh. Boom. Ending with some spice. Boom. The same. Finishing up with our final question, it comes from Gustavo from Soonerland who says, Hello, Keelan Shotgun. I was happy to hear on Tunnel Vision that the best USC podcast was coming back. What? Well, then, I appreciate that everyone appreciates us. Both Shotgun and Keely are blushing. It's true. I'll blush. <laughs> anyway, he says, My question, which sophomores do you think will contribute who didn't get much run during their freshman season? Thanks again and fight on. Uh, I mean, just with ITS going down, I think you got to look at Dorian Hewitt as a guy who's going to step up. He was probably that fourth cornerback in that rotation, played really well against ASU, um, made some big plays down the stretch in crunch time. I mean, this guy who's really blossomed in that cornerback spot after initially believing, you know, he was going to be kind of a, a safety. Um, but that speed could be a difference maker. Um, maybe they'll try him a little bit at nickel. I don't know. The guy that thought he was going to be a safety didn't know he could play cornerback. You know, he had no confidence in playing cornerback, and the coaches saw it in him. Uh, so that was one of the ones where coaches' evaluation turned out to might be really, really good that evaluation was there. Really interesting development towards the latter half of the season, seeing that work out and that story. Um, I'm going to go with the wide receivers. I mean, with Michael Pittman gone, Brew McCoy, Kyle Ford, uh, I think Brew McCoy is going to be a beast. You know, he's over the illness. He's doing the workouts and stuff. I think he'll be on the field this season in some capacity. I think Kyle Ford got his feet wet. Now I think he's ready to go. Uh, to similarly, you can look at Jude Wolf and Ethan Ray in the tight end position. If that position is used as it could be, you know, both those guys could could get in the mix and get a little bit more playing time. That also might depend on on uh, on Daniel Morabebe as well. So, Bruno McCoy will have the most eyeballs of anyone on in the spring. Is that? I think so, yeah. Yeah, there's no real returnee from absence in the same regard, I think. I think that's what will drive it. If JT does anything in spring, then yeah. 
I don't think it's gonna happen. It's an uh, if. It's an if. Here's a here's a name to keep in mind. Dejon Benton. Oh, yeah. he was someone. Yeah, he's a guy that was in the rotation at the defense tackle spot. Now, how is he using this defense versus the previous defense? But they really liked him on this. This the previous staff. Uh, if Chad Kay is, is still the defense line coach, you know I think that he has a lot of potential. He's a guy they snuck late. You know, flipping him from was it Washington State, I believe it was. Yeah, it was like a early signing day. Just came in. I remember looking. I was like, Hoffman did a story. I was like, new commitment. Someone I've never heard of. Yeah, flipped. it was kind of okay. out of the you know out of the blue for us. We hadn't heard much about him. I think Gerard heard a little bit more about him. But you know, he's a guy that continued to progress as the season went on. That's the type of guys you're looking for. I mean, there's a couple other guys that got a lot of playing time on special teams. Britton Allen is another guy that I think could work his way into the rotation, especially if you get a safety injured or if you're using you know five, six DBs on the field at the same time. They're really good in the run game. Yeah, and uh, and Jaden Williams was another guy. I don't know, you know, de- depending on where, because he's a tweener, I think he might fit well into this defense as well. Alrighty, we've gone long, so I'm gonna wrap this puppy up. Any final thoughts, guys? Before I call it. I mean, I just really appreciate being here for the third time, taking a chance. You're our me. most used guest. Used? Featured guest. I don't like the sound of the any o- of those. The only other guest we've had is Taylor Mays for five minutes. So, <laughs> Chris Trevino, Taylor Mays, uh, you know. Official friend of the pod. Oh, does he get that luxury? Shotgun? Maybe that's the only one in that category right now, necessarily. Daddy of the pod? <laughs> Ew, Hell no. no. Think about it. Hell no. No. Cousin of the pod? I was actually thinking about this when I was yeah. driving. You're like the weird cousin who like you come over sometimes, we have fun, but do we really want to spend weird uncle? all time with you? Isn't no. a weird uncle? Nah, but you're cousin. our peer. Yeah. Yeah, you're the weird cousin. <laughs> Solved. I can get you fire, fireworks. <laughs> you know, legal no, smokes. It's like, no, like younger when we were like kids growing up. Yeah. You're like the weird cousin. I'm the kid who eats the, paste. You're the one that <laughs> yeah, sits in the corner. Are. I hate this. I'm out. <laughs> you're the one that sits in the corner by himself, doesn't talk to anyone. You're like, is he really related to us? I yeah, don't know. Like, eh. But then he makes, he's funny sometimes, so you yeah. keep him around. Yeah. And he's really good at kickball, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you asked. Yeah. You asked. Someone give me another injection in my butt of these gusto pills. <laughs> On that note, we're going to wrap up the pod. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for your patience during our hiatus. Shaka, when are we going to be back next? When we come back. Yep, so we'll keep you on your toes. I'll most likely be in the parking lot. <laughs> so we know. <laughs> We've gotten the emails. <laughs> Alrighty, that's going to wrap it up. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. That's Shaka and I'm Keely. We'll see you all next time. Bye. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.